following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. So welcome everybody. Um, I'm going to introduce Mary Jo. I wanted to tell you just a little bit about myself so that um, you can understand how I got to know Mary Jo. It's been over the internet uh, email. Um, I run a meditation center in Rochester, and Mary Jo wrote me an email maybe half a year or so ago, and we exchanged emails, and I looked up um, her name on the internet, and as soon as I saw this this, this um, waterfall of fascinating articles and Amazon book listings and so on, I, I, I just couldn't believe that, that this lady lived in Minnesota. Uh, how had I not met Mary Jo before. Um, she's had an extraordinary life, not least because she's lived um, in many places. She's also um, studied and practiced and become very accomplished in several different religions and contemplative practices within those religions. And this reflects, I got to learn from having dinner with her this evening, a really deep um, spiritual drive throughout her life. Um, and um, uh, she um, is in, really quite inspiring in the way that she has uh, uh, looked for, in particular, uh, a kind of through line between the deep Catholicism that she was born into um, in St. Louis, uh, where she was born and raised, and um, started her career as a psychologist. Um, she got her BA at St. Louis University and later an MA and a PhD in clinical uh, and personality psychology. And uh, then she became a professor um, in those subjects at Mankato State University from 1975 to 1998, uh, where she both directed the clinical training programs uh, in those areas at Mankato State and later um, I believe she actually started those programs and then helped to start up and run the religious studies programs at MSU here in Minnesota. Um, throughout that time, as the books that she has written attest, she was undergoing um, continued, really deep self-reflection on the nature of faith and the best way to express faith in life. Um, she first, uh, I'll, I'll read you the titles of her four books, which actually illustrate this um, this uh, evolution uh, going from Catholicism and uh, Catholic and uh, Christian um, and then psychological forms of um, contemplative work all the way through to Vipassana. So in 1984, she wrote a book called Psychology of Religion. In 1994, she authored a book called Gentling the Heart, Buddhist Loving-Kindness Practice for Christians. In 1995, she wrote a book called Through a Glass Darkly, A Spiritual Psychology of Faith. And in 2007, she wrote a book called Christian Insight Meditation, Following in the Footsteps of John of the Cross. So, <clears throat> way too much to really succinctly distill in an introduction. I certainly picked out, though, as I read some of her um, articles published online and excerpts from the books that she has really been a great 
clarifier of the distinction and the important distinction that we made between faith and belief. And she has said over and over again, and she's taught over and over again, that, that faith is more than just holding right opinions. Indeed, that being rigidly attached to opinions and beliefs is, in a kind of, is in a certain way, a non-faith, and doesn't really open you up to the direct and open knowing of experience from moment to moment, which can lead to the deeper kind of faith. And then, to state the obvious, she's really been a major bridge in this country um, between the Christian and the Buddhist contemplative traditions and open this uh, this topic up to many hundreds and many thousands of people. Um, it would be, I'd really leave out something major if I didn't tell you that she's had um, eight children, and as she explained to me at dinner, six of them homemade and two imported. <laughs> and the two imports are from South Korea adoption. One of her daughters is Rebecca Bradshaw, who I'm sure many of us know because she speaks frequently at Common Ground. And uh, as for her topic tonight, I asked how to, how to introduce the topic. It's, her talk is called The Pursuit of Happiness. And she said, I just got interested in it because I looked at this right that's guaranteed in our Constitution to um, the pursuit of happiness. But that suggests that happiness is always running away from you and we're pursuing it. That, so then she said, that didn't sound like a right that I was interested in. It sounded like a prescription for suffering. <laughs> so we look forward to hearing you elaborate on that theme. Mary Jo, Mary Jo Meadow. You said an awful lot, but you left out my cats. Oh, yeah. Let me see. Uh, she lives with four cats. <laughs> Lovely creatures. As those members of my sitting group who are here know, because they've met... Oh, sorry. I was, was going to do a preamble anyway <laughs> before I started the, the actual talk. I work from a text so that I don't forget anything that I want to say, but um, the preamble sort of was covered by the introduction that, that while my talks are primarily Buddhist in nature, they do do some forays into other traditions and into psychology, and especially Christian mystic John of the Cross, whom many people have called a crypto-Buddhist, so you'll hear a little bit of other stuff. So you kind of took my opening paragraph, but I'm going to do it anyway. Our Declaration of Independence asserts our right as human beings to pursue happiness. When you look at it, it is a rather odd notion. Pursuit suggests something is running away from you or abandoning you, and you're trying to grab hold of it. Being in this condition sounds like a lot of suffering, so why should it be considered a right? And the truth is that pursuing happiness is a great way to guarantee suffering. I want to look a bit at the notion of pursuing happiness, consulting the early voice of Aristotle, Jewish thought, the Buddha, John of the Cross, whom I've mentioned, and even some contemporary psychology, for starters. The Buddha, of course, taught that it is our nature to want to be happy, but most of us go about it in an entirely wrong way. He said we need to understand what causes unhappiness and learn how to avoid the traps that lead to it. And then doing this will bring happiness. Bhante Gunaratna wrote, 
quote, our fragile happiness depends on things happening in a certain way. But there is something else, a happiness not dependent on conditions. The Buddha taught the way to find this perfect happiness. To find your way out of suffering means confronting the roots of resistance and craving right now, right here. Close quote. This comes down in the Buddhist teachings to avoiding wrongdoing, cultivating virtue, and developing the mind in meditation. Meditation does for us what we cannot do for ourselves regarding the emptying out of all the impediments to happiness that must go. For the Buddha, happiness in this world requires having a mind of equanimity, being non-reactive to the changing fortunes in life. The ultimate happiness, of course, is Nibbana. I want to go back to Aristotle some now. In his work on ethics, Aristotle said that happiness is not pleasures, goods, or fun, something about which the Buddha would agree. He said that it means flourishing, thriving, experiencing the human well-being that comes from living the right kind of life for the right reasons in the right manner. To do this, he said we need to perfect the rational potential of our beings, which we're going to get away from in a minute, and understand that we get these things through cultivating virtue. He said the choices we make are important. Making choices in the direction of cultivating virtue doesn't sound like what most people would think of when they think of pursuing happiness. Rabbinic Judaism shared ground with Aristotle's methods for happiness. An intrinsically good life is a key component in Jewish thought. Good acts flow from rightly developed character. To be good and to be wise are the same thing in Jewish wisdom tradition. Philosopher Maimonides said, follow Aristotle only regarding the natural world. He taught that we grasp truth at different levels and that the ultimate aim of human life is contemplation of the good, or of God, and that Eden shows us what human life should be. He said that when we let imagination rule us, instead of reason, we fall from this goal. Holding correct views about God was also very important for Maimonides. Certainly some of the contemporary views that people have of God are much more conducive to developing greed than they are virtue. God, make my football team win. God, let me win the lottery, and so on. Now, mystical Judaism of the 13th century kind of moved the focus from this philosophical speculation to the lives of holy people. It went from being heavily intellectual in its outlook to being motivational. It taught that virtues can be acquired only when we cleave to aspects of God that reveal God's essence. So we love God by participating in the life of God in virtue. Quote, What are the attributes of God? Mercy, kindness, patience, love, 
honesty, forgiveness, and justice. The serious Jew cultivates these attributes through meditation. Close quote. So, for mystical Judaism, we cultivate virtue, which brings happiness, not by following reason, but by trying to be godlike. John of the Cross agreed with the Buddha in saying that nothing and no one in this world can give us lasting happiness. Indulging desires for any of this causes us grief. Our ultimate happiness for John was participation in the life of God, and he said that coming to this requires goodness, virtue, and deep contemplative prayer. So we see in John some of what mystical Judaism said, coupled with some of the teachings of the Buddha. And John's compatriot, Teresa of Avila, said essentially the same things. She said that without virtue, we will always be stunted in our spiritual life. Contemporary humanistic psychology also teaches that happiness is a byproduct of a life well lived. This was a cardinal tenet of Abraham Maslow, who was the seminal force in this tradition. He said if we pursue happiness, our self-realization directly, we will be doomed to failure. A Buddhist monk echoed this teaching regarding enlightenment. Quote, there may be bliss with awakening because it's actually a byproduct of awakening, but it is not awakening itself. As long as we're chasing the byproduct of awakening, we will miss the real thing. Close quote. So after that brief historical thing, we're going to talk now some about our aversion to suffering. Human life necessarily contains a relationship to suffering, and how we relate to it has great implications for our ultimate satisfaction our dissatisfaction in life. The wisdom of the world says to use whatever means we can to keep all kinds of pain at a distance. And we've become very adept over the course of our lives at pushing it away whenever we can. We see pain as the enemy, but that's really not so. All the various forms of pain that we experience are really a great compassion because they tell us that something is wrong. Children who are born without the ability to experience physical pain get quite maimed bodies early in life because they don't get the signal, the pain signal that something's wrong and can like leave their hands on a hot stove so they're burned badly. The word pain comes from the Latin word pena, P-O-E-N-A, which means penalty. Sometimes pain is the penalty we pay for ignoring the laws that govern our lives, physical, biological, social, civic, and moral laws. 
Sometimes it just seems a penalty for being human. It certainly is a penalty for the disorder, whether self-created or inflicted by others in our beings. Our state of being makes pain necessary. Nobody imposes pain on us. It's just inherent in how we unfold. Pain invites us to grow and heal and signals that these blessings are occurring. Failing to deal with painful issues when they first occurred in our lives is why they become unfinished business in our inner life. If we run from pain in meditation, healing cannot occur. In our mindfulness practice, we deeply explore the nature of pain. One of the first things we see is how we relate to it. We see our general aversion to it and start to see how this creates suffering. We see the unhelpful techniques we figured out for tolerating, avoiding, or grudgingly accepting it. Some of us become bitter or detached when we confront pain. Some consider it a basis for wrong judgments about themselves or others, seeing self or others as deserving suffering or as being incompetent in managing life. We call this identifying with the suffering, seeing it as belonging to oneself or as an attribute of oneself. Some people hang on to the identity of being a victim who is wrongly treated or being a pawn of cruel fate. We might use our claim of suffering to get other people to respond to us in ways that are unhelpful for both ourselves and them. In our practice, we open up to our pain and pay close attention to it. We realize that it's there, so we need to learn helpful ways to relate to it. We come to understand it, to see its causes, and to realize that we need to learn to live with it and befriend it in order to be liberated from it. And we also very importantly see the difference between physical or mental pain and the suffering that often follows. Our practice teaches us a new way to be with the unsatisfactoriness in our lives. We can truly touch happiness and joy only when we've come to terms with their opposite. On the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha asked the question, what causes suffering? He saw that it comes from our craving to have things other than the way they are, our grasping at unhelpful solutions to this craving, and our getting trapped in grasping for what we think will fix things for us. Added to this is identifying with the whole process, seeing ourselves as one who is suffering. The solution to pain is not to try to get rid of it. 
We cannot do that directly. We don't have that kind of power. We can't tell it to go away. The solution is to change the unhealthy patterns in which we're caught. When this fuel that feeds suffering is taken away, suffering is extinguished. Struggle increases suffering. With surrender, suffering lessens. With perfect equanimity, it disappears even if we're in great pain. There's that real difference between pain and the suffering that struggle with it causes. Not only are we strongly conditioned to fight against suffering, we also usually see pleasure as happiness. The types of pleasures humans pursue are numberless. We want this or that and spend considerable time working out strategies to get it. The Buddhist Four Noble Truths are all about desire or craving, which the Buddha taught is the cause of suffering. The first truth teaches the basic lack, limitation, and unsatisfactoriness that constitutes human life. Illness, aging, death, not having what you want, having what you don't want, and so on. The second truth points to desire or craving as the cause of our suffering. Desires for sensual, emotional, or mental pleasures. Ultimately, it comes down to wanting things to be other than they are. A third truth teaches that this craving can be totally overcome. That we can abandon the desire that causes suffering. And then, of course, the fourth truth. The path to the end of suffering shows us how right living, meditation practice, and coming to wisdom. Buddhist writer Andy Olinsky compared craving or greed to fire. Quote, like a fire, greed is more a process than a thing. It's the state of combustion the activity of consumption. It's insatiable by nature since the moment one desire is gratified, another flares up, demanding also to be sated. Greed drives an unquenchable compulsion to consume. As it burns, it throws off a compelling light, dazzling us with the pleasure of its shapes and colors. We delight in playing with this fire. Close quote. And Sayada Upantita taught, quote, In their quest for happiness, people mistake excitement of the mind for real happiness. They never have the chance to experience the greater joy that comes with peace and tranquility. Close quote. John of the Cross, uh, my favorite Christian mystic, discussed some of the ways in which we seek happiness with disastrous consequences. 
these ways are based largely on physical, emotional, mental pleasure, delighting in things, relationships, and in our own being. He first considered temporal goods, and he said these include material riches, position, status, fame, marriage, relatives, and family. Now, of course, such things are not bad in themselves, but the weakness of human nature makes getting hooked by them very likely. A good example of this was recounted by Sheldon Van Auken in his book, A Severe Mercy. His and his wife's relationship had been entirely closed in upon themselves. Her death devastated him. When he discussed with author C.S. Lewis how much her death taught him, Lewis told him her death was a severe mercy. Buddhist teachings similarly list family, disciples, projects, dwellings, and the like as possible books. John next spoke of natural goods, quote, beauty, grace, attractiveness, other bodily endowments, good intelligence, discretion, and other abilities, close quote. We can easily get heady about our assets, and some even consider meditation experiences to be personal possessions. Seeking happiness in one's personal assets is a sure route to suffering. All of these characteristics are uncertain. They can go at any time. A dear friend of mine, a scholar, started having memory problems. He learned that one parietal lobe of his brain was shrinking for an unknown reason and that the intellectual delights he enjoyed would gradually become a thing of the past. John next considered sensory goods, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and imagination. We all have some limiting attachments to various forms of sensory stimulation. The consumer society sheds a full spotlight on attachment to sensory goods. Commercials feed our need for constant stimulation by tempting us with unnecessary products that deepen our tendencies to try to escape even the slightest tedium or boredom. The Buddha taught that we cling to such things out of fear or greed. We think, I need this, or I must have this. We feel empty, so we eat or drink too much or distract ourselves with other momentary pleasures. John of the Cross then went on to mention something that we would consider very good in itself, but that can also be a hook if we look for happiness in it. Moral goods were next on his list. He talked that virtues, good habits, good manners, 
keeping moral guidelines and works of mercy do have direct value in contrast to attachments to frail and perishable goods, moral goods, quote, bring along with them peace, tranquility, a right and ordered use of reason, and actions resulting from mature deliberation. Humanly speaking, a person cannot have any nobler possession in this life, close quote. Yet even these goods cause harm if we wrongly grasp them. If we're looking for pleasure or satisfaction in practicing them, they can also make us vain and presumptuous and lead us to look down on others. Satisfaction with our own virtue can make us unable to take advice from others or to consider arguments for moral opinions that oppose our own. Virtue should be practiced for its own sake, not for personal satisfaction. Over time, then, we do develop strategies for fulfilling our desires, strategies that occupy a lot of our time and energy. We want a relationship with a particular person or an iPod or a job that brings in more money, and so on. We don't stop there. We might decide that inner peace or beautiful meditation experiences or great intellectual stimulation will make us happy. We often consider these to be higher wishes, so think they don't count as desires that cause suffering. So we plot our course to gratify our desire, whatever it is. Whenever we directly pursue happiness, we're making the same mistake, no matter what we're pursuing. Even though intellectually we might accept that pursuing either grosser or more refined pleasures in our quest for happiness is not helpful, we still really don't want to be free from our desires. Bhante Gunaratna explained, quote, We don't want to admit that clinging to the pleasures of the senses, the taste of delicious food, the sound of music, gossip, or a joke, the touch of a sexual embrace, all end unavoidably in disappointment and suffering, close quote. This same is true, of course, for all other things that we might pursue seeking happiness. Although the feelings they bring feel good, they're all impermanent. Since impermanence defies all our attempts to hold on to anything, none of these pleasures can really bring us lasting satisfaction and joy. The short-term gratification they give us doesn't take care of our longing for happiness. It just hooks us. Pema Chodron quoted her teacher, Zigar Kontrol, as saying, quote, Trying to find lasting happiness from relationships or possessions is like drinking salt water 
to quench your thirst. Says quote. I'm going to start talking about some ways that the Buddha said we can find happiness in this life. But first I want to quote something that interesting that the Dalai Lama had to say about unhappiness. Quote, Whether we are suffering at present or have suffered in the past, there is no reason to be unhappy. If we can remedy it, then why be unhappy? And if we cannot, there's no use in being unhappy about it. It's just one more thing to be unhappy about and serves no purpose at all, close quote. A lot of wisdom in that. And Sharon Salzberg wrote, quote, To be truly happy in this world is a revolutionary act because true happiness depends upon a revolution in ourselves. It's a radical change of view that liberates us so that we know who we are most deeply and can acknowledge our enormous ability to love. We are liberated by the truth that every single one of us can take the time and pay attention. This is our birthright. Our own happiness can change history and it does, close quote. So the Buddha cataloged a number of virtuous conditions that show us that our true nature is being revealed. He called these great good fortune for that reason, but also because the mind that manifests these states is a happy mind. They are part of the natural state of our mind, uncluttered by impediments. Cultivating these conditions gives us great happiness in this life. So this is the great good fortune sutta of the Buddhas. He was asked by somebody, what constitutes the greatest blessing in life? And the Buddha replied with, Ten verses, each containing several aspects of blessings or happiness. The first two lines say that it is happiness to offer homage to what is worthy. This is an attitude of respect and gratitude. The Buddha's next couplet addresses something we often take for granted. Quote, suitable dwelling and having done good deeds, having set oneself on the right path. Close quote. Suitable dwelling is a great blessing. We who have homes to go to and places where we can do spiritual practice often don't stop to realize what a blessing this is. We seldom pause to feel gratitude that some basic human needs have been met for us. Without it, life is often chaotic and unsettled. The Buddha went on, quote, 
understanding, and well-learned discipline, well-spoken words, and civility. Close quote. Christian St. Teresa of Avila said to always have your speech be congenial so that people won't be afraid of you. We can do this even when we have to say hard things. In other words, good manners toward others are part of earthly happiness. The next source of good fortune that the Buddha mentioned is living carefully and abstaining from things that lead us in wrong directions. On discipline, the Dhammapada teaches, quote, Indulge not in heedlessness. Restrain from sense delights. Truly, the earnest and mindful obtain bliss abundant. Close quote. Then the next set of blessings of good fortune. Quote, Support of parents and cherishing spouse and children, following a peaceful livelihood. Close quote. Taking care of the relationships we are given respects the life that we've been given to live. No matter how poorly our parents might have done their task, the Buddha said that even if we carried them on our backs for the rest of our days, we could not sufficiently repay them for giving us life. We need to see that they do not want. And once we've made children, we must see them to self-sufficiency. Our culture is so full of emotionally and financially abandoned children. And then there's the spouse. When we make commitments to a spouse, we intend to keep them. But we do realize that some relationships can become toxic. We must meet responsibilities necessary for the welfare of a spouse, even if we must leave a harmful relationship. The Buddha also mentioned right livelihood in the couplet we're discussing. And his teachings on right livelihood tell us not to engage in work that harms or misuses other beings. And he specifically listed trade in intoxicants, meat, persons, and weapons as inappropriate. We also must be honest in all our business dealings and respect all persons, services, and products involved in our work. The next verses sum up generosity, morality, and again, respecting our relationships. Quote, giving alms, living righteously, cherishing friends and kin, doing no deeds that bring blame, abstaining from wrongdoing and shunning intoxicants, being steadfast in righteousness. Close quote. Teachings on intoxicants are given much more importance in Buddhist thought than they are in the Western traditions. 
Intoxicants are one of the greatest causes of suffering in the world. The cost in lives and money of drunk driving alone is staggering. However, an even greater personal loss is to the intoxicated person. One cannot have a clear mind when fogging it with drugs, and a clear mind is absolutely essential for spiritual work. Next, the Buddha mentions some virtuous attitudes. Quote, reverence, humility, contentment, and gratitude. Hearing spiritual teachings in a timely way. Close quote. Surely gratitude is one of the most ignored attitudes that can bring happiness. Ajahn Sumedho wrote, quote, The Buddha encouraged us to think of the good things done for us by our parents, by our teachers, friends, whomever, and to do this intentionally, to cultivate it, rather than just letting it happen accidentally. Close quote. Alfred Bloom wrote, quote, Gratitude is a way of undercutting your ego. That is, it's a way of being Buddhist. It really goes back to interdependence and those basic Buddhist concepts. The awareness that we get now and then about what we owe to others. When we see this, the egotism kind of takes care of itself. Close quote. Gratitude focuses on what is right about our lives, what we can appreciate. Practicing it regularly can help us when we find ourselves yearning for something else, feeling that we need another person or thing to be happy. We can develop this beatific attitude by taking some time each day to think of what we have to be grateful for at that time. Gratitude is a truly delicious feeling. The next couplet refers to attitudes and behaviors that foster spiritual life. They emphasize being teachable and having like-minded people as companions. This, of course, points up the value of having sitting groups where we can regularly practice with others. Quote, Patience, meekness when corrected, seeing others who are controlled, spiritual talk in due season. Close quote. The Dhammapada offered this advice on being corrected. Quote, if you see wise ones who see your faults and reprove you, it would be good, not bad, to be with them and to regard them as revealers of treasures. Close quote. From having a helpful advisor called a Kalyana Mitta, a noble friend, and practicing attitudes that foster spiritual practice, the Buddha's next three couplets go to the happiness 
of realized beings. This happiness beyond ordinary earthly happiness is available to us right here on earth. Quote, self-restraint, living a holy life, discerning truth clearly, realizing for oneself the spiritual goal, a heart untouched by worldly things and not easily swayed by sorrow, a heart passionless, stainless, and secure, invincible on every side. Those who do these things on every side, they go to bliss. Theirs is the greatest blessing. Close quote. Now I'm going to go to something from the Christian tradition that I think is often seriously misunderstood, um, but that reflects a lot of what we just heard from the Buddha about happiness here on earth. And that's the prescription of Jesus for great good fortune that's found in what are called the Beatitudes. The word blessed appears repeatedly in most translations of this, but it could just as easily be rendered as happy or fortunate. They're all translations of that same word. The Beatitudes are about the same issues the Buddhist addressed in his Great Good Fortune Sutta, how we can have the happiness in our lives that comes from good living. I think very often people think of the Beatitudes as a list of the miseries we have to suffer in this life in order to get a reward later for enduring them. That's probably because in the last one, Jesus speaks of great rewards in heaven. I think seeing the Beatitudes only as for the future misunderstands them. I want us to check some ways to see them as a blueprint for happiness in this life. The first one reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? Those who are content with what they have and don't hanker after anything else, good, reputation, and so on. When we're content, we don't yearn for anything and we possess a heavenly state of satisfaction. We want for nothing when we're content with what we have. Blessed are the sorrowful, for they will be comforted. Who are the sorrowful who will be comforted? This morning is not a self-centered focus on personal issues or unhappiness. The comforted mournful are those who commiserate with the sorrows of all beings, who are compassionate, and who understand that earthly life does not provide complete satisfaction. Community takes away aloneness and our own personal misfortunes. We find comfort in bonding with other beings who share the fate of earthly life with us. But these, of course, must not turn into self-pitying sessions. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
The gentleness of the meek responds lovingly to situations rather than contentiously. The meek do not insist on what is theirs or dispute with others for position. They relate with an attitude of loving kindness, gentle friendliness, what Christians call agape love. This attitude is the love that casts out fear. And you know the Buddha taught loving kindness practice as an antidote to fear. This attitude then brings great happiness because it makes us feel completely at home on earth. When you can be threatened by nothing, you possess the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. Obviously, these are not people who are out looking for the justice of vengeance, not those who might wear the t-shirt that says, I don't get mad, I get even. It's those who care that their own conduct does not inflict harm or injustice in the world. Consciously mindful conduct makes us increasingly moral and harmless to other beings. Our thirst for goodness is satisfied, and our good conduct brings us satisfaction and happiness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall uh, shall obtain mercy. The merciful understand the roots of suffering. They don't blame others for their limitations, but they want to help them grow beyond them. They see the pain behind others' bad behavior and become compassionate toward those who do wrong. As we understand how so much bad behavior comes out of the pain in our own beings, we realize that this applies to ourselves also. So we become gentler and more patient with ourselves. As we're merciful toward others, we become merciful toward ourselves. And we receive mercy from our own merciful minds and hearts. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. The pure of heart are single-minded about spiritual pursuits not narrow-mindedly bound to particular practices, but confirmed in spiritual practice in a way that will not falter. Purity of heart is utter sincerity, the absence of clinging to anything other than seeking our final end. As we increasingly develop that single-mindedness, we increasingly wear the mind of God, as John would say. He said that ultimately we see with God's seeing, know with God's knowing, and love with God's loving. When this is the stance from which we perceive the world, we see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. The peacemakers want to foster solidarity and harmony among people. We could say they are the children of God, for they see the oneness that embraces all without partiality. They know that in this seeing, 
There cannot be contention and animosity toward any other being. Anyone with this vision of human relatedness expresses a godlike attitude. And you could say that that is the happiness here and now of being a child of God. Finally, those who are persecuted for the values they hold and yet stand firm are the valiant spiritual warriors whose fruition is all the sweeter because of the price paid for it. (coughs) Valuing their commitment to holding fast to what the Buddha called the good path, doing so brings happiness. So we see that many of the stances outlined in the Christian Beatitudes parallel those discussed by the Buddha and his discussion for happiness in this life. We can have it all. So let's develop those qualities that will bring us happiness here on earth. And that's it. I will take we do take questions. Five minutes. He said, "Okay, I'm, I talked too long to take too many questions." But if anyone has a question or comment, somebody. my mind just sort of naturally hones in on where I see connections between traditions. That's just something it wants to do. Anything else? Maybe we're done. Another question. Okay. Um, Do you find anywhere in the the Christian tradition uh, specific meditation instructions along the lines of watching what's happening in the present moment vis-a-vis sensations, sight, sounds, whatever's occurring, whatever's being sensed. Is, is that specific type of instruction present? It is not anywhere near as systematized as it is in the Buddhist tradition. But if you read the writings of a fair number of Christian mystics, you find, yes, this is what they did. Uh, just a couple of examples. Um, a spiritual writer named Dekasad spoke about the sacrament of the present moment and spoke about the the present moment being what you have in it, sacramental, and you're holy with it. Um, A woman named Kiara Lubick, who formed a group called the Focolare Movement um, when her fiancé was killed um, in in war, um, she said, think of your life as a succession of candles passing by you on a conveyor belt And your task is to light each candle when it's in front of you. If you fret about the ones who've gone by or worry about the ones that are coming, you're going to miss the one in front of you. Just light each candle as it is in front of you. Um, One more. Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, a a Carmelite lay monk, said that he found God among his pots and pans in the kitchen as readily as he did in the chapel. So there's just... a. But there's no systematized, but it, 
it seems clear to me that all of these people must have practiced that kind of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the kinds of, one of the kinds of that I would do is pretty easy. It's a small concept of accepting things as they are. As opposed to trying to make them change. And I'm trying to, to reconcile that with kind of the anniversary of the March on Washington. There's been a lot of talk about Martin Luther King and, and, you know, the effect of trying to change cultural mores aside, you know, and that whole bit. And I'm trying to, to reconcile that with I think there's I think there's a relatively simple answer to that. Um, it took me a while to learn it, um, and actually my meditation practice taught it to me. Um, when I was a young woman. You find me a cause, and I would be out there beating the drums and marching and making noise and doing all that, and I often wondered why I seemed to turn off so many people to my good causes that I was trying to promote. And my practice showed me that where that was coming from was my own dissatisfaction with the way things were. It wasn't coming from a true compassion. When we can accept things the way they are, it does not mean that if they need changing, we can't change them. But it means that we're not acting out of our own reactivity. We're not acting out of the fact that I don't like the way things are and I want them different. If we come from that kind of a place, we will turn off other people and push them away and we won't be very effective. But if we can be at a kind of acceptance, a level of accepting it the way it is, we can look at it clear-mindedly, and then if we see that change is called for, we're not acting out of our own stuff. We're acting out of the call of the situation itself, and there's a world of difference between the two. Does that help? Yeah. So the accepting might be seen, but you're coming from a wholly different way, a different mindset. Yeah. It's, it's that you you don't act out of your own stuff. You're acting out of what the situation calls for. And it, 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 you know, I, my practice showed me that. I think our practice can show us that if we're open to seeing it. Where our action is coming from, you know? And that's the difference. It doesn't say you can't change what needs to be changed, you know? Just don't act out of your own stuff. Stay and balance yourself. I have a follow-up question to that. Um, so he was asking more about these, these bigger issues of humanity, but what about if you're trying to make life decisions by your own life and maybe it seems more natural or appropriate for your decisions to be about your own stuff? Can you talk a little bit about how you could apply that way of thinking for very small types of personal problems or personal decisions that feel big in a life? Um, actually, it wasn't a Buddhist teacher. It was a yoga teacher. And for a dozen years before I found Vipassana, that was my major practice, I think I got the very best advice of all. I was at a crossroads to make a decision in my life, and I went to my yoga teacher and I said, doesn't feel right doing this, but it doesn't feel right doing this, but it doesn't feel right closing this off either or cl-. 
He said, sit in the middle of the road and learn patience. When it's time to act, you'll act. So I think some things we have to give them the time to ripen. And I, when it was time to act, I knew, I knew it was time to act and it was very clear which way to go. And I would have been forcing something if I had tried to act before it. That's, that's one of the, one of the little tr- nuggets of treasures that I, I keep stored as, as every now and then a spiritual teacher says something that, yeah, I'm going to remember that the rest of my life. And, and that was the one of the ones that I remember. Okay. Oh, one more. Um, you know, I, I heard a theory that Jesus went to the East and learned, you know, Eastern traditions, and that's part of what he brought in. And, um, you know, I've always wondered about, Jesus goes into the garden and says, will you not watch with me one hour? And he always seems to be going into the garden and watching. So I'm thinking, what is he watching? <laughs> So, um, what do you think about possible influences of earlier teachings from further east on, you know, the culture that Jesus Well, we do know that the some of the sayings attributed to Jesus in the New Testament came from the teachings of the Essene, Essenes, which were a mystical Jewish sect that we know had some ties to the east. I don't think Jesus traveled to India or anything like that but through the Essene mystics with whom he must have had contact because well a lot of these beatitudes by the way are found in Essene teachings although they're attributed to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount so I think there could be that connection for sure and an even more interesting one is the um, John who wrote the fourth um, gospel, the, the Gospel of John. He starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the Hindu Upanishads, in the beginning there was the Brahman, and the Word was with the Brahman, and verily the Word was the Brahman. And this was written well before the Gospel of John. Now, where did John come up with something that was almost identical to Hindu scriptures? You know, there's, there's all sorts of fascinating parallels in scriptures around the world like that that are very interesting. But, you know, to uncover all of it, we can't get definite answers, I don't think. You know. 